And um, we're so glad that you're here tonight. Always want to thank you for coming out for Wednesday night Bible study. And uh, always thankful for how the Lord uh, works. And um, tonight we're in chapter 2. Hopefully you got the notes back there when you came in. Uh, And we're looking at the church at Thyatira. Church at Thyatira. And so if you have your notes from weeks past, you know that all of these cities are fairly close. Uh, Every Bible commentary that you will read will give a little bit different. Some say 30 miles, some say 40 miles, some say 50 miles. So let's just say it was on the road that would have followed the delivery routes. And um, Thyatira was uh, the smallest of all of the towns that would have received a letter from the Apostle John. But yet, even though it was the smallest town, it received the longest letter. And um, this was a town of great wealth. Uh, It was a town that would have been financially uh, very successful. Uh, And it was because uh, each um, trade, each different skill set for uh, making things, uh, whether it would have been coppersmiths or it would have been uh, dye, um, the coloring of different uh, things, uh, you would have had to belong to a certain group. And in that group, it would have been kind of like a modern-day union, right? You couldn't do it unless you belonged. And uh, you were well-treated for being in that group. But the problem was those groups were many times tied to false religion and pagan worship. And so if you wanted to be in those groups, uh, whichever one that would have been, you would have had to worship the God or the false God, I should say, that that represented. And so you could imagine for a Christian who is called to be loyal to the one true God, uh, as you're looking to feed your family, work for a living, and yet you must make the choice, do I deny my faith and embrace this pagan religion, or do I miss out financially on a blessing and stay true to the Lord? And that was the struggle that this church had. And I think about the Church of America today, And I think that all of these letters are very fitting and very applicable. But I think this one could be very much maybe the one that hits closest to the home, closest to us. Because so many times we as believers will say things like this. I vote my pocketbook rather than my morals. All right, church is something that I am a part of. But when I leave here, where I work, the money that I make, how I make that money is my own business. But yet this letter really drives to the heart of that, about what are you willing to compromise to gain the treasures of this world? What are you willing to embrace that God says not to, to get ahead financially? And so uh, I think it's very uh, fitting there. There are some pictures there at the beginning of those notes. Uh, The bottom one is a pagan temple. Uh, What is left of that from the day, the top picture there, are um, some of the ruins from the day and age that we find ourselves in. 
Uh, this actually is probably one of the cities that has the least amount of um, ancient architects and things like that because uh, they just recently started digging. It was kind of not as important in some of these other towns. It was kind of off the beaten path. And so they have just really started to dig. They've really started uh, to uh, study the archaeological significance of this. But this town is very significant because if you remember in Acts chapter 16, a very important woman by the name of Lydia, uh, who was a great blessing uh, to the apostles, was from this town. She probably would have been a die maker. She would have been someone who would have been very wealthy, very prominent, and was used as a blessing. And as I said last time, uh, because I am trying to be a kind person, uh, if you go to the back of your notes at the very bottom, there are the answers, all right? So if you miss the three, I'm even getting less and less for you to fill in, and you have the answers there. And so we'll just read our text tonight, and we'll jump in. But before we do that, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we believe that it never returns void, that it is used by your spirit as power, the power to work in our hearts and lives. And so, Father, tonight, there is nothing good that I can add to your word. There's nothing good that I can add to what you are doing. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help me to not grieve your spirit, not quench your spirit. Lord, forgive me. Lord, use me to explain your word in a true, honest way that you might be glorified. Thank you for each individual that's here tonight, and we're just so thankful to be able to worship you in fellowship and the study of your word. And Lord, we just ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. And so here in chapter 2, starting in verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation." unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan... As they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you will have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him 
I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. And I also, as I have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you're taking notes tonight, we see a church that was being used by God. This was a church that was being used by God. And I honestly believe if you are going to be a part of a church, that is what you and I should want, a church that is being used by God, not just one that congregates, not just one that shows up and meets for a little while on Sunday, but that you can look and say, God is using us to make a difference for His kingdom. Because it starts in verses 18 and 19, and He commends them for what God is doing through them. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and His feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. What we see here is, is that he starts off by talking about the eyes like um, a flame of fire. And if you flip over to the end of this reading, back in verses 28, and he talks about uh, looking and, uh, and seeing. And so he's kind of give this idea that God knows everything that we do. There is nothing that we do as Christian individuals or as a church that God does not see. And I've been uh, in church my entire life. <laughs> and I have seen, uh, I like to say everything, but not everything. But I have seen plenty of people in churches try to do things in secret. Right? Try to run off a pastor in secret. Try to, try to run off a person in secret. Try to get their way in secret. And what he says here is that God sees it all. God sees the good. God sees the bad. God sees the righteousness. God sees the wickedness. You and I might try to accomplish things on our own. We might try to fight our own battles. But what he's trying to remind them is, is that he sees it all. And for this group of people, that would have been very encouraging, but it would have also been very condemning. Because some of them would be saying, we've missed out on everything. Our families are struggling financially. We can't find work. We, we can't get access to these, uh, these businesses that are willing to pay us because of our faith. But yet there would have been other people who would have read this and thought, oh, he's talking to me. Right? I've been going to them pagan festivals. I've been worshiping at them pagan temples so that I could get that income, so that I could get that wealth. And so tonight, wherever you're at in your spiritual walk with the Lord, it can either be an encouragement or it can be something that should cause us to stop. Because tonight you might be here in a state of life where you're saying, Jake, I just feel like everything's going wrong. I feel like I cannot take any more burdens, any more struggle. I cannot take any more, and I feel like everyone has forgotten me. No one understands what I'm going through. And God wants you to know He sees it. He sees that you've been wronged. He sees that you're ready to quit. He sees that everything seems to be stacked against you. And so in that moment, it's a great encouragement because I know that God has not forgotten me. 
that God has not abandoned me, that God has not left me. But on the flip side of that, if you're here tonight and you're trying to hide sin in your heart, you're trying to hide things in your life that you don't think anyone else knows about, it is a reminder that, hey, the people you go to church with might not know it. The people you live with might not know it. But God does. God knows those areas of your heart and your life that you've closed off to everyone. But He starts by giving the positive. And I think it is important if we want to be a church that God uses, we ought to study the thing that God celebrates. What does God commend a church for? Because if God shows no partiality in this church was living this way and pleased Him, then if we will do these things, we will what? Please Him. And so He just starts right off here and He says, I know your works, the, the, the fruit of your labor. Alright? He is being a fruit inspector to what they are doing. And He starts by saying, love. And this word for love can mean a love that you have toward God. But in this context, in this verse, it is a love that you have for each other. Christians loving one another. And truly, we know that we are able to love because God first loved us. But he says this group of people love each other. This church loves each other even though they don't agree. Even though some of them are being stinkers. They truly Love each other. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And if you remember some of the churches we've looked at, some of them were doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Some of them have had the right motives but have not done the right things. But yet here he is again commending them for loving one another. The Bible teaches us that you cannot hate your brother. You cannot have unforgiveness to others and be right with God. If you're going to love God, that is going to change how you love others. Just because you dress up in your best clothes on Sunday, carry your 20-pound Bible into church, does not mean you're right with God. If you want to know tonight, if you are right with God, you have to ask yourself, am I loving Him and am I loving others? Am I loving the people I go to church with? Am I loving the people I go to Sunday school with? Am I loving the people I sit by on Wednesday night? Am I willing to truly love them? Because out of that love, He brings up the second thing, service. And this means serving one another. It means that real love doesn't just give lip service. It begins to change who you are. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 15 says it like this, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints devoted themselves. It means that they have committed to love one another in word, but also in deed. Um, we are in April and May, uh, we go through a period of evaluation. We evaluate our employees, 
we evaluate all of our ministries, how many people were running in church, how many people were running in Sunday school, how many kids we have on Sunday nights, how many kids we have in each Sunday school class, and we check back to the growth of last year and, and what our numbers are and how many people are serving and all of those things. And the reason is, is because even though many people will come to church and claim to love God, if you were to see how many people are actually acting on that love, you would find a great disparity. You would find a great number of people that are not living out the gifts that God has given them to serve one another. Now, this never happens, okay? Once in a great while, maybe twice since I've been here in 11 years, someone will say something like this. Jake, you know, I used to work in the nursery. I know I need to work in the nursery, but I just can't miss your sermon. And I usually know at that moment they're not telling the truth, all right? They just don't want to work in the nursery. And what I'll usually say is something like this. You have been in church forever. It would probably do you more good to serve in the nursery so that that young family who just started coming to church could have somewhere to leave their kids so that they can be fed, so that they can hear the Word of God. And, uh, and I believe that's because why? We are called to serve. We're called to serve one another. And why I was saying about our evaluations is, and so on a given Sunday, there are, uh, I think it's 546 people or something at some point come through one Sunday morning, Sunday nights, you know, Sunday school. And so out of that uh, 400 or so individuals that are here on a Sunday, uh, 217 are in Sunday school. So that's 55%. On Sunday night, usually, there are uh, a total of about 44% from Sunday morning who are here. Our Sunday school is up by 30% this year. Our kids' Sunday school classes are up by about, um, I don't know, 17 kids or something like that. So God is continuing to send us more kids, more people. And what does that mean that we need more of? More servers, more workers, more teachers. And that gives us an opportunity to love and serve one another. And I think it is important because why? Because most of us forget sometimes, even if we don't mean to, that Jesus said that He did not come into this world to be served, but to, to serve. And if I want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, I must be least. If I want to be first, I must be last. And so he is commending this church for not only loving each other in their hearts and in their words, but in how they serve one another. And so the great need that this church has is not more people. I mean, I, I hope that God continues to send more people and new people and, and save the lost. But Jesus said it best, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so tonight I'm challenging you to think about how are you serving? 
How are you using the gifts that God has given you? If, if this letter was being written to us, could you say, yes, I am a part of that serving. I'm a part of that loving other people. Are you serving or are you swelling? Some people call it soaking, all right? You come in and you soak everything up in church. But usually, anytime I've ever spent much time in water, soak and I end up swelling, right? And so sometimes you need to recognize that you have soaked and swelled long enough and God wants you to then serve. So he goes on, he says, love, service, and faith. And just like the first two were connected, faith and patience are connected. This word for patience is this idea of endurance, being unmovable when things come against you, unmovable when the trials of life come. And in James chapter 1, it says there, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And so, if you are truly a child of God, if you've truly been born again, if you have a real faith in Jesus Christ, when the trials of life come, while they might cause you to get discouraged, while they might cause you to stumble for a season, real faith in trials is proven by endurance, by the patience to continue trusting God. That's why when we read of Job and all that he went through and all that happened to him, and his wife tells him, just curse God and die. He does it. Why? Because his faith was real. And even though his trials and tribulations had taken everything from him, he said, I will praise God. Right? Naked I came into this world, naked I will leave this world. Because it says in Romans 15 these words, We then who are strong, not on our own, okay, spiritually mature. I hope you know that, that not everyone is the same in spiritual maturity. All right? We're all equal in value as children of God. Right? But your spiritual maturity is different from someone else. All right? We who are strong ought to bear the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but at it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is going to make some men so happy. If you want to know whether you are spiritually mature or not, it is not by how much you are at church. It is not even by how much you read the scriptures. 
It is defined when someone who is a fellow believer but is weak in their faith wrongs you, doesn't do things the way that you think they should do, causes you to want to make them slap them, but you don't. But you are able to extend mercy and grace knowing that Jesus took our sin. Jesus took our reproach to the cross for us. And do you see what it says there? The Scriptures, all that we read about might give us comfort knowing that the entire Old Testament is full of godly men and women who suffered at the hands of others. Right? Jesus even said it, right? You have killed the prophets. You have have wronged all of those that I have sent to you in the Old Testament. And so when we begin to think in church that it's about us, that I've been wronged, I've been offended, I've got an axe to grind, what he says there is, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love verse 6. I don't like to apply it, all right? Because what it's saying is, if I am always worried about the wrongs that have been done to me and the pettiness that has happened to me, or the failures of other believers, I am not going to be able to praise God because I'm going to be destroying them. I cannot sing the praises of God and destroy Matt with the same tongue. You can't sing in a Sunday service and walk out in the lobby and destroy someone with your tongue. As a believer, I have to be mature enough to say... It's not the way I'd have done it. It's it's not even the way I want to do it. But I'm going to be the adult. I'm going to be spiritually mature and pray that God changes them, that God encourages them, that God strengthens them. And I know that there are halos all over this room tonight. But if you're honest, this is not something you like. It's not something I like. But yet, he is teaching us this, that through patience, through endurance, we grow in our faith. Why is it that churches go through difficulties? Why is it that Sunday school classes go through difficulties? Why is it through pastors go through difficulties? So that we can learn patience. We can learn how to forgive. We can learn how to comfort because we have been comforted and I don't know about you but I would love to be patient without having to go through what it takes to become patient I just wish I was patient but what it says is is patience is something you grow into you grow the more you're able to apply it in your life Spiritual maturity is something that happens the more that you are able to forgive, the more that you are able to grow up in your faith. And that's why he's talking about this in verse 19. Because right after that, and then we'll stop for discussion, and as your works 
the last are more than the first. And what that means is, he says, you are more like this now than you were. You weren't always this patient. You weren't always this loving. You weren't always serving this much. But you are growing more and more like Jesus all the time. I don't know if there's a greater compliment that a church could get or a believer could get that we are living more and more like Jesus. We are more and more reflecting of who He is. And that's what He says here. That you are becoming more and more like who God wants you to be. And this is going to be important because they're living in a city of great compromise. And the more you live like Jesus in a society that teaches compromise, the more you shine. The more you stand out. The more you look different than the world. Right? We live in a world that is selfish, conceited. It teaches you to get what you want when you want. It teaches you if you don't like what you want in traffic, just flip somebody off. I was talking to someone the other day, and uh, they were talking about when they used to drive a semi in Chicago, and I might have told you this or not. And he said, I did not know that I had won so many awards as a truck driver. And I went, what do you mean? He's like, I was the number one rated driver in Chicago. And I'm like, I don't get it. Your company gave you an award for being number one. He said, no, but all the other drivers on the road did. And then it dawned on me which number one finger he was getting. But that's what we're taught, right? We're not taught to discuss and compromise. You turn on the news and it's arguing and fighting and bickerness and selfishness. But yet the marks of a believer are to be totally different than that. And what John is telling them through these letters is, your witness is growing greater and greater where God has you. And what I, my prayer for this church is... 203 years now is that hopefully we are looking more and more like Jesus. We're loving each other more and more. We're willing to serve more and more. We're willing to forgive more and more. Even more than we did yesterday. Thoughts, questions, discussions. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, was was ungrateful for that and went after the door mm-hmm. for smaller debts. Uh, and that's kind of the mindset there that you're not willing to serve others to the great debt that was paid for us. Oh, absolutely. We're we're regretful about that service. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Even though this was a church that was being used by God, we see that God had something against them. The wickedness that they had ignored. The wickedness that the, they had ignored. Nevertheless, so he says, I, I'm going com- to commend you. I'm going to compliment you. But nevertheless, you're not perfect. And every church would get this. All right? There are no perfect churches. 
There are no perfect pastors. There are no perfect deacons. None of us, all right? So before you think I wouldn't have a nevertheless, you are mistaken, all right? Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality, and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation." unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, when we see that word Jezebel, almost all of us recognize that that is an Old Testament reference to an Old Testament queen who was extremely wicked. Uh, you can read about her in 1 Kings chapter 16 uh, and, and following. But I want to give you a couple of these verses about, first, about Jezebel in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 16 verse 31 it says, And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal king of the Sidonians and he went and served Baal and worshiped him and so it's talking about a wicked king who goes and finds a wicked wife but in 1 Kings chapter 21 look what it says but there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Now, that word for stirred means incited. And so Ahab was a wicked man, a very wicked man. But what happened was his wife was wicked enough to know how to encourage him to be more wicked, to how he should live it out. Right? The Bible teaches us that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can know them other than God? And we know that we can do wicked things. That's what it said about Ahab. But there was just something about how Jezebel knew how to push him to do more. To take that wickedness up a notch. To say, I can't believe you would do something like that. And she would say, let's show them. That's the context that we have here. And I think this is very, very important for a couple reasons. For you who have been married a long time, and some of you have been married longer than I have been alive, and my parents have been alive almost, you know the longer you live with someone, they know the buttons to push. If they want to help you, they know how to talk you out of your anger. If they want you to fight for them, they'll know exactly the, tur the knobs to turn to get your motor running, to get after them. You know that. And that is what it gives this idea here that even though Ahab was wicked, Jezebel was so wicked that she wasn't just worried about her wickedness but leading others to be more wicked as well. And that's very important 
Because there are so many times that our sin affects us. But there are other times that our sin can be used to affect others. I like to consider it like this. All of us get angry from time to time. Every one of us. The Bible says do not let the sun go down on your anger. But I would say most of us have been angry enough at times where we have wanted other people to be angry with us. Well, you know what they're like, Marcia. You know. You know. And so not only am I angry, now you're angry. And then we can say, David, now you, you know too. And so our anger, our sin, our wickedness is being used to cause others to sin. In church, it's kind of like this. Well, you know, I don't really like the way things are going. What do you think about the way things are going? Now, I don't want no one to know that I'm unhappy, but just tell me how unhappy you really are. See, my unhappiness and wickedness is now being spread. And that's what it's talking about here with Jezebel because what he continues to say in this text is he begins to talk about what she is doing in this church who calls herself a prophetess. She's calling herself someone who speaks for God. This is not someone who is outside of the things of God like Jezebel was. Jezebel never claimed to be a follower of the one true God. She always was about Baal and pagan worship. This is an individual who is in the church, who is trying to influence the church, but is trying to influence it to be wicked, to leave the things of God. And it says here, to teach and seduce my servants. She is trying to lead the true children of God astray. I want you to see this. Not everything bad in church happens because everybody's lost. People can get mad and fight in church and be saved. Now, some of you might not agree with that. That's okay. You're wrong. All right? Good people are led astray in churches all the time. Just the way it is. And years down the road, you look back and be like, oh, man, what was I thinking? I should have known better than that. He doesn't call them Satan's servants. He calls them my servants. This woman was trying to lead God's people not away from salvation but into disobedience. And so that is why I think he just told us about being patient and forgiving because you need to know that good, not good because there are none of us good, but saved people can hurt you because they've been led astray. They've listened to the wrong person. They've put their faith in the wrong teacher. They've listened to the wrong whispers. And you have to forgive them. You have to be willing to extend mercy and grace to you. Because look what it says. She is trying to teach them and seduce them or deceive them. And you can see there in those notes under teach. Thyatira was just the reverse of Ephesus. There, much zeal for orthodoxy, but little love. Here, activity of faith and love, but insufficient zeal for godly discipline and doctrine. A patience of error, even where there was not a participation in it. I want you to think of it like this. 
these people were trying to love each other so much and to have unity so much that they were at the point where not everything matters. Not all what you believe matters. It's all about love. And you hear that in some of the more liberal churches today. Right? It doesn't matter what we believe about sin. It doesn't matter what we believe about heaven or hell. It doesn't matter what we believe about homosexuality or sexual sin. We just have to love each other, right? That's kind of what this lady was playing on. Was I know that these people love each other. But they're not willing to put that love into action if it means correcting one another. It means that it slipped in and no one was willing to do anything about it. I want you to see in Acts chapter 17 how that can keep from happening here. In Acts chapter 17 verses 10 and 11, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. The study of God's word together is what keeps a church on the right path. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, Jake, Sunday school is so boring. Wednesday night is so boring. But you and I need it. You need it so that you know that I'm teaching the Word of God and that you are believing the Word of God. Are we always going to agree? I think if you're here on Wednesday nights or in a Sunday school class, you know that not everyone agrees. It's not possible for all of us to agree on everything. But why do we believe what we believe? Are we willing to search the scriptures to find out what we believe? Are we willing to believe what matters on the big things? And are we willing to hold each other accountable? You see, this church wasn't willing to do that. They were not willing to search the scriptures together and say, wait a second, this isn't right. We're being led astray. And I think it's important because it gives you two things here. To teach and to seduce. Teach and deceive. So one, it is being taught, but it is also then being explained in everyday context. So I can teach you that the Bible says you ought to be honest and in a person of integrity and you ought to live your life that way and share scriptures with you. But after church is over and you come to me and say something like this, Jake, I've got like $8 million worth of property at my house. But you know how expensive it is to carry insurance on $8 million worth of stuff? Is it okay if I only keep $4 million and lie to my insurance company? You know what? That's, that's probably all right. The insurance company makes enough. Don't you worry about that. Just don't park everything in the same place. Spread it out. That way if a tornado gets some of it, it'll only get some of it. You see, you have been taught the right thing, but then you've been deceived. And let's be honest, that's where the Christian faith gets hard. It is in those everyday moments of life. Those areas where 
things get kind of, it hits our pocketbook. It hits us at work. And it's important because it follows up in this very same text and says what? It goes on and says, My servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. What this lady was teaching them was, Hey, you need money to survive. The church needs money to survive. And so it's not wrong for you to go into one of these places whether it's a coppersmith or a die maker, and partake of the sexual sins that would have been orgies so that you can make a living, so that you can accumulate wealth. It's okay as long as it's in the form of some kind of religious or personal betterment. And that food that you shouldn't eat because your conscience says don't, don't worry about it. Whatever it takes to fit in. Whatever it takes to get ahead, God understands. It was specific. And the Lord says, this ain't going to fly. This is not going to fly. Look in verse 21, and this is where we'll take discussion. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. It means that God set a period of time, if you look in the original language, but at some point, He was not going to give her more time. Judgment was coming. Tonight, you might be saying, well, why are people getting away with the wickedness that they're getting away with? Why do people in church who are doing wrong get away with it? Because God is long-suffering. He's giving them time to repent. That's what it says, right? He gave her time to repent, and she what? Did not repent. This is very important. If that's where you're at tonight, know that God is gracious and merciful, but at some point He will not be anymore at some point correction is coming thoughts questions don't ask me how long that is because I don't know absolutely Absolutely. Jacob says in there that her sons or family would all be killed. Were her sons born at that point? So what you're thinking of here is probably physical sons, but what it's most likely referring to is spiritual offspring. So, for instance, those that follow her wicked teaching, those who are embracing. So the Bible says that Liars are of their father, the devil, right? So they're not technically his physical offspring, but they are his followers. And so what most commentators believe is not only is this woman going to get what is coming to her, those that she has brought along with her 
and those who are helping her do this are going to be under uh, the same judgment. Um, like I said, not physical offspring, but that spiritual offspring. But very good question. All right, so she gets time to repent. She chooses not to repent. And then verse 22. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. So just because she's guilty doesn't mean they have to be guilty, right? They could have repented as well. I will kill her children, those that have been following after her, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the mind and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So he goes back and says, I know if you've really repented. I know if you've not really repented. I uh, was listening to a sermon today by a gentleman that does not believe the same about a, a theology that we do on everything, but most things. And he was talking from the passage of Scripture that talks about a dog returning to its vomit and a pig to its uh, filth. Uh, and he was talking about how that was a reference to people who were saved and are now not saved. But if you know anything about the New Testament, Jesus never refers to his children in any context as pigs or dogs. Never. In the New Testament, we are referenced as sheep. The thing about dogs and the things about swine that that is being referenced to is the fact that you can clean your mouth up and still not be a sheep. And just like a pig, you might be able to clean your external up, but you're still a pig. And the church is full of people who have learned how to talk like Christians and look like Christians, but are what? not Christians. Think about when Jesus said, you will stand before me on that day and say, well, we've taught for you. We've done miracles for you. We've prophesied in your name. And Jesus says, I will tell you, depart from me. I never knew you. And so when we look at this, we need to know that, that there is one way to be right with God. And that is to repent and be born again. To be brought into the family of God by the covering of His blood. Questions before we hit this last section very quickly. All right, you have so many good questions. Thank you. We see that believing God's Word gives us hope. Believing God's Word gives us hope. Now I say to you and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. Now stop here. What he says is, in a lot of these churches, they've got persecution. Uh, they've got all kinds of stuff. But what he says is here is, this is a big enough battle that this is all I'm going to allow you to go through. I'm not going to make you fight with this lady and external persecution. I am limiting you to what you have to go through. 
And for me, this is a great encouragement because I know that whatever God allows me to go through, that He will give me the strength to endure. That no matter what challenges might be before me, what mountains might need to be climbed, as the old song says, that He knows. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. He says, don't you be getting so prideful and arrogant that don't you think you can't stumble and fall. But don't you forget that when God allows you to go through something, He has given you what you need. The old saying, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, is not accurate. It's not accurate. God doesn't give you more than He can handle through you. And that's what He says here. I know the battle that you're fighting, and I'm not going to put more on you. Because whatever this battle they were facing was going to consume all of them. It was going to be the thing that needed to be done. And God says, that's it. I'm not putting any other burdens on you. It is meant to be encouraging. I wish that the Lord would tell us that sometimes in a specific way. But yet He does tell us that in His Word, in the promises that He gives us, that He will never leave us nor forsake us, that angels go before us and behind us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The Bible is full of those promises that talk about who God is and what God does in relation to us. And this is the one I think is so special in verse 26. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this morning star is a reference to the Messiah. What we are recognizing here is that Christ is the vicar. Christ is the one who wins the battle. Christ is the one who gets the glory. But yet the Bible says we are joint heirs with Jesus. Right? When He comes to destroy His enemies, we get to watch as He does it. And I guess it's just because I struggle with wanting my enemies to be wiped out by the Lord. But these always make me very happy. When the Lord says, don't you worry, they're going to get what's coming to them. I always pray that the Lord saves them. That's what I always pray. Lord, save them, change them, forgive them. Lord, be merciful to them, be long-suffering to them. But when the Lord says, hey, they're going to get it, and they're going to get it good, I'm like, I knew it. I knew it. But I want you to see what Titus says, and I'll be done. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly loves, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Whatever we are going through as a church, whatever battles you are fighting spiritually, you need to remember that God purchased you for a purpose. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but through Him they might be saved. And so you might feel like a failure. You might feel like you're not accomplishing anything for God. You might feel like that there is just so much stuff in your life and in your past. But never forget who you belong to. Never forget that He has a purpose for you. Never forget that He has a plan for your life. And as a church, I want to remind us of that. And I'm probably the world's worst. But there ought to be excitement in what God is doing in His church. What God is doing in your life. You ought to come expecting God to work. I'm looking forward to being in Sunday school today. I'm looking forward to being in worship today. I'm looking forward to being in Bible study tonight. I'm looking forward to being in worship. I'm looking forward to working in the nursery. I'm looking forward into working in children's church. I'm looking forward to what God has given me the opportunity to do. And I really believe that that is how we came to church. Things will be a whole lot different. Now, I've seen how excited you are when you come to eat. There's just a joy about you at 5.30 on a Wednesday night, especially when we pray and eat early. Some of you are just like, oh, it's Christmas. Like a fat kid in a candy store, right? I can see it on your faces. I'll be like, we're going to start eating early. What? What? But that ought to be how it is when the things of God are being talked about, when the things of God are being addressed, because we never know the spiritual blessings and the spiritual victories that we might see God do in our life. The Sunday morning of revival, uh, the very first morning, we had a man in his 60s that was saved. And uh, come on, is that really the best you're going to get? Amen. <laughs> I know I talked for a long time, but seriously. And... Um, and I had a chance to talk to him this week, and he was struggling with some doubts and things like that. And so uh, he's supposed to be baptized this Sunday as long as his health holds up. And, um, and it's brought me great excitement because God is at work. God is moving. God is doing things. Do I wish 37 people would have been saved at revival? You bet I would have. Do I wish 100 people would have been saved at revival? Absolutely. But yet the Bible says that all heaven rejoices... When how many are saved? One. And so I'm just going to thank God for it. I'm going to pray that God will do it more often, that God will continue to work and move. And I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to what God could do next.